We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, and it is the 16th of October, 2018, episode 170, and probably a pretty big one, I'd say. Dear listener, this is a podcast that looks at news, current affairs, and in particular, religious matters going on in Australia and around the world. And we started this podcast a bit over three years ago as an extremely concentrated look at secular issues in Australia. And for us, the goings-on of the last week are pretty big. So Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking a lot about that. I am your host, Trevor the Iron Fist, and with me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. How are you all? And tonight, I'm drinking from our first beer sponsor was a Mountain Goat Beer Fancy Pants. It's actually quite good. Thank you very much, Was. And mm. follow it up, we'll have a Stone and Wood Pacific Ale from Land and Hard Bottom. <laughs> we're um, going to be here for several hours. Forward, we're going yeah. to need several beers. And, <laughs> and Paul, the 12th man. Hi. Hi, everyone. Glad to be with you again. <laughs> Right, so we're stocked up with beer. We've got a mountain of stuff to get through. Let's uh, jump right into it. So we've had the the Ruddock Inquiry saga erupt this week and it's fair to say that the whole Ruddock Inquiry saga, I think, is irony at its best. So ironic, the definition, happening in a way contrary to what is expected and typically causing wry amusement because of this. (laughs) I, you can't, the nation's best plastic surgeons, it would take them 18 hours to get the smile off my face. You know, I am very happy with the way it's all blowing up in their face. Yeah. yeah. Future editions of the dictionary, when they refer to ironic, are just going to put uh, the Ruddock Inquiry saga. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So in summary, dear listener, the marriage equality law caused the religious right to feel persecuted, which caused the Prime Minister to placate them with the Ruddock Inquiry, which was stacked with religionists, causing it to produce recommendations which the Prime Minister didn't like, which caused the report to be shelved, which then upset people who wanted it exposed, which caused it to be leaked, which didn't worry the new Prime Minister too much because he liked the recommendations, but the leak caused the public to be aware and angry at previously unknown discrimination laws which caused a risk of a by-election loss, which caused the Prime Minister to bow to public opinion and announce a new law, which, of course, has caused the religionists to feel persecuted again. (laughs) Back to the beginning. So ultimately, the religious groups, they don't get anything that they don't already have, essentially. But the, the publicity surrounding the report and the timing of it means that people are finally looking at the issues we've been banging on about for three years mm-hmm. and they're saying, what the hell? I had no idea that those laws existed. We, we need to change them. And as a result, Morrison's caved and he's agreed to remove a privilege that the religious schools previously enjoyed and that the panel recommended continue. 
so an inquiry designed to expand religious privilege has actually caused a contraction of it. And that was what was so beautiful about it. It really was. Mm. And, you know, they're not going to stop here too. I mean, the, the laws that Morrison's put forward is going to stop schools being able to expel kids for being gay. But they're not going to stop there. They're going to go and they're going to they're going to uh, they're going to end up removing the ability to, s- to dismiss staff for being gay or being out, being living in sin, having kids out of wedlock, all that sort of stuff. And that's going to be where it's going to finish. Is that the religious schools are going to be left with nothing? Well, that remains to be seen. And I am exactly very happy about that. Say. I'm no, not as confident as you. Seen. No, you you no. will wait. We'll wait and see. I think but we'll see I would more have thought protection for kids. I'm absolutely, not sure the kids will th- see protection for staff. Oh, I think you will. As far. I think you think you you will under a Labor government. Yeah, it's finally put a bit of backbone. Well, you know, we'll get onto it. But the Labor Party has been pathetic on this issue. Oh, for gorgeous. years. they were the ones. They were the ones that unlaid. They were the ones that um, gave the religious schools this sort of privilege anyway. Indeed, but at least now they can see some votes in it. When, now that they're seeing what's happened, they will go, hmm, okay, maybe we can move on. So who knows? But let's uh, run through a few bits and pieces, a bit more detail. So uh, Scott, when he arrived here, we, we both agreed that the key moment was when Morrison was interviewed. And I'm going to play a little bit of that interview for you now. They already can. That's the existing law. That's the existing law. And so the report in today's Sydney Morning Herald forgot to mention one critical factor, that the existing law enables schools to do exactly what was in that report. So that's, that's not a change. That's actually backing in an existing law. As an individual, do you believe that it's fair that a child could be rejected from school because... Well, it's the existing law. And we're not proposing to, 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 to change that law, to, to take away that existing arrangement that exists. So I think there's been a bit of confusion about this. I'm sure it wasn't willful. Uh, but what the what the uh, we have a report that's been provided to the government. It's a report to government, not from government. Uh, it's a report that the government will be considering and developing a balanced response to, and we'll do that uh, in our orderly process, taking it through cabinet. This has not been through cabinet at this point. Uh, it hasn't been considered by cabinet, so we will take it through that orderly process, and uh, and we will come out with our response to the Ruddock review. Uh, but I want to make it really clear that what was reported today is existing law. Existing law. So you're comfortable with a school expelling a student because they're gay or lesbian? It's existing law. Are you going to make the report public? At the moment, I think it's been leaked today. Will the government publicly... That was the important bit. When that reporter said, so you're happy with a school expelling a gay student, he just said existing law. He likes the E-word a lot. Yeah, and he thought that would get him off the hook. It didn't get him off the hook. No. All it did was force him to dig a hole very, very deep for himself that he then had to dig his way out of. It's an existing hole. It's an existing hole that just got deeper and deeper for him. And this is the whole point. I mean, when when he said, oh, it's existing law, that at that point, ladies and gentlemen, that's when you could hear the penny clunk across the entire country. Mm. And everyone turned around and looked at the TV and said, what do you mean this is existing law? And then they started to look into it. And exactly as Trevor said, everything we've been banging on about for three years has come home to roost for them and the bastards are going to lose it all and I am very happy about that. What do you think? There's going to be a backlash in Wentworth? Um, I wouldn't be surprised, 
because Wentworth has been described as the gayest electorate in the country. Oh, yeah, mm. it's also it's had the like eighty percent, eighty percent of the popu- of the Wentworth mm. by-election of the Wentworth people voted in favour of gay marriage. Oh, they did, yes. Mm. And also, you know, the whole point is Malcolm Turnbull went down over the national energy guarantee. Wentworth is also a seat that wants action on climate change, <laughs> and they haven't got it under this current government. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Karen Phelps gets up. I mean, Hang it on. would be... Turnbull yeah. didn't go down because of the National Energy Guarantee because the guy who was actually the architect of that ended up being Deputy Prime yeah, Minister. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, yeah, he did end up being <laughs> Deputy Prime Minister. It was somebody's excuse, but that's not the real reason. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hey, um, straight after that interview that you just heard, I played the clip of, um, I, I fired off a letter to the editor of The Australian... Uh, it didn't get published, but it was a really brief one. I said, uh, gay bashing used to be done in the dark behind the toilet block. Now it is done openly in press conferences by our Prime Minister. Terrible for our Prime Minister to to say that, to not be prepared to stand up. It's just terrible. It was terrible, wasn't mm. it? I mean, like, he just... He didn't actually agree with the proposition that the journalist was saying, but because he didn't oppose the proposition that the journalist was saying, he agreed with it. And that was the thing that was really offensive about the whole thing. Morrison is just—I'd almost He's a prefer spineless little wimp. He is. I prefer, and I've got more respect for someone like Abbott, who at least has conviction. This guy is a a spineless twerp mm-hmm. who's just parading around with his Cronulla football jerseys and making out that he's the friend of the working man. Exactly. Yeah. And just—it's a pathetic con act and. People surely will see through this guy quickly, I would hope. Well, one would have thought so. Yeah. So no conviction. And uh, like all Christians, he just picks and chooses the pieces of Christian morality that suit him at the time. And uh, I wonder if people really will be able to say anymore, you know, what is a core Christian? You know, what are the core values of a Christian? Mm. I think there'll be a lot of confusion in the uh, general community about what a true Christian really is because he holds himself up publicly as a as a Christian and yet no, he doesn't seem to know where he even stands on anything. That's right. I mean, that's the problem with the Christian right is they're not very Christian and they're not right. <laughs> <laughs> true enough. Uh, so what we've got now is he's come out and he said, oh, okay, we, we, we can't have discrimination against kids. We won't, we won't let that happen. But you can still discriminate against adults. So like, if something's a fundamental right worthy of protection, it shouldn't matter for that sort of right, whether you're a kid or an adult, surely. Well, he's saying, you know, children have to be protected, but mm. adults need to take responsibility for their lifestyle choices because that's mm. how the Christian right sees homosexuality, as a lifestyle choice. Indeed. That's a crucial thing, that they see it as a matter of choice. Not as a matter of, you know, Birth. the way you are. Mm. Yeah. Indeed, not as an innate characteristic, mm. whereas they see their faith not as a matter of choice, but as, a, as an innate characteristic almost. So we're going to talk about that sort of issue because it's instructive to try and work out this whole thing. So, in fact, we'll do that right now. Um, 
because we spoke about this in way back in episode 110, back on August 2017. Scott, <laughs> you might remember. remember. No, I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a little primer, dear listener. When, you, when you're listening to these Freedom for Faith organisations and these other guys talking about religious identity and the balancing of rights and, and freedoms, here's what you need to understand. And I've stolen a lot from this particular article that's referenced. So some of our characteristics or identity, such as skin colour, gender and sexual preference, are innate. Others, such as political or religious belief, are acquired or maintained by our choices and rely on values and ideological content. So innate characteristics are beyond a person's control. They cannot be criticised for being good or bad, therefore always deserve protection from discrimination. It would, for example, be absurd to praise or blame Martin Luther King Jr. for being black or Margaret Thatcher for being a woman. There's no ideological content to their identity to assess or debate. So there's no praise or blame to be done. With Ideological or value-laden identities, the situation is different. So the most obvious is political. So you've got doctrines, beliefs, values that have implications. And clearly, so for example, we could criticise Margaret Thatcher for her neoliberal political beliefs. The crucial question for tolerance in our debate that we're talking about here is where does religion stand in relation to this divide? And we would contend that it's just an ideological, value-laden identity more akin to a political identity than to those based on race, gender and sexual orientation. So um, what really matters is not so much that the person's particular religious identity is chosen, but it, it's that it's got ideological content in it and that content can be criticised. So what we've got with these new laws is... In the recommendations, the report said that nobody should discriminate based on race, pregnancy or disability. So that's, we agree with that. that that's those, they're things that don't have values related to them. Yep. But they said you can discriminate against gay people. Well, that should be in the same category. It doesn't have values as part of it. So why did they separate sexual preference from the others? It just doesn't make sense. Except they would argue that it's a matter of choice. Mm. People can choose to be gay. Well, the evidence would be, no, they don't. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't matter. It's, it's not really so much choice. It's are there values and ideological content in this that can be criticised? And there isn't. So it really falls into that upper category of identities that really can't be discriminated against. So when you're looking at conflict between rights and identities, keep that in mind because it's a useful way of prioritising what deserves protection from discrimination and what is open to criticism. Is there an ideological content in that identity or characteristic? And, of course... They want to, the religious right, elevate religious belief up into that 
innate category when it really d- belongs with something like a political belief. I mean, we can criticise people for a Marxist belief or an economic belief, whether they're Keynesian or whatever. We can criticise political belief. So they're trying to lower sexual preference into into a minor characteristic and elevate religious belief into a major characteristic. And the reasoning doesn't stack up, in my humble opinion. So... Other things, do you guys want to interrupt or will I just keep on with my rant? <laughs> no, keep going. <laughs> right, okay. So the other thing is uh, Scott Morrison was right that it, indeed existing laws uh, say that, um, except in a few states like Queensland, Tasmania and the Northern Territory where in relation to school children, probably not. And I thought that that would mean, okay, if the Commonwealth's introducing this law then a state like Queensland, which previously didn't allow it, is suddenly going to allow it. But in the fine print of the recommendations, it says, oh, if there's a state that already doesn't allow discrimination, then then these proposed new laws shouldn't apply. Well, where's the sense in that? Like, if you think a, a law about religious freedom is so fundamental that Australians need to enjoy it, but you're going to say, oh, those states over there, uh, we won't interfere with them because they don't have it already. <laughs> what? Have who's on this panel, you dickheads? Like, at least have the conviction of to carry out your own beliefs if you honestly think what you're saying is right, and then you're going to say, oh, but the states who don't already have this, we're just going to leave them alone and... So it's right so, in some states and not in others? Exactly. There's no consistency. Exactly. There. They weren't prepared to to paint this new law across all states. Yeah. Hmm. And in a state like Queensland where you there was no capacity to um, to discriminate against children in enrolment, the, the, the so-called new laws weren't going to apply. Hmm. I just – it beggars belief. Who the, the nutters on this panel – and apparently, according to – David Marr, these guys were unanimous, he thinks. He, he understands that, that the panel members were all unanimous in these recommendations. I couldn't tell you about that. That'll it, be interesting It wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that. Uh, let's just see. Um, what was not recommended? Um, well, we didn't have any masterpiece bakery-style freedoms. So that was a little bit of a concern that maybe they would say the cake shop owner can refuse service. So there's something. Was it refuse service or oh. just as we discussed in the, la- the, the yeah, last? Well, 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 who knows what it might have been? Because <laughs> there was that interesting case in Ireland recently. Yes. Where the. Um, Belfast. Yeah, where a, a, a bakery or a cake shop. Um, was was it was known that the owners and the proprietors were practicing Christians, and a um, a gay rights activist uh, quite purposely targeted this shop and um, very deliberately asked them to decorate a cake with a gay rights slogan, and mm. he declined, or the the owners declined, and they mm. said, look. Uh, we'll sell you a cake. Uh, we don't have a problem serving you as a customer. We've served you before. And this 
particular gay rights activist said, no, no, you've you've got to give me a cake with this. The, you the, know, the, I support... Uh, the words were support gay marriage. Gay marriage. And mm. he said, sorry, but that's just a step too far from me because it conflicts with my religion. And so he was prosecuted under some sort of um, discrimina- anti-discrimination um, provisions in the law. Mm-hmm. and lost the first round, appealed it, and the higher level of the courts in Ireland uh, defended the proprietor. Yeah. And uh, the proprietor ended up winning, I think. Yeah, it just came out. Finally, yeah. And that's yeah. a good decision. I for think me, it's all, a good decision. For me, it is as well. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I yeah. honestly, I, I think the, the proprietor did the right thing. I mean, he all along, he said, look, I don't have a problem serving you. I'm not mm. against you because you're gay. Yeah. It was just the particular signage that he doesn't that, customarily provide, yeah. so that's fair yeah. enough. And yeah. it is a obviously an, a political slogan, and mm. he said, sorry, it conflicts with my religious views. And I, Look, I think mm. even though I'm, as you know, very anti-religion mm. in terms of I think religion is just a bunch of old superstitious nonsense and that humanity would be better off without it, I don't think we can outlaw religion any more than we can outlaw you know, people wanting to be communists or, you know, rich people or whatever. You know, you mm. can't outlaw people's the way they think. And hopefully with the passage of time, religion will die a natural death. But until that time, I think you have to tolerate people's rights to believe what they believe. And so long as they don't actively discriminate against gay people or, you know, anybody else based on their attributes of birth, then... Yeah. Paul, we've had some heated debates about bakeries. I wouldn't say and, heated. And, <laughs> I would and, say heated. I would and, say... Um, and there you go. After all these years, we've reached agreement. I think we've we've come to okay. a mutual understanding. I think I we think. probably always did more yeah. or less agree, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, it just took me a while to convince you. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are, the, what are the religious groups saying in response? Well... Let's start with Lyle Shelton. <laughs> One of our old favourites. <laughs> yes. Who said... He's a madman, isn't he? Who said... Well, he's a man of conviction, at least, which is more than you can indeed. say for ScoMo. Indeed. <laughs> well, he said, schools should not have the right to expel students simply for being gay, but should be able to do so if a student acts on that impulse by having sex. Yes. <laughs> and look, that underlines the, the whole issue a little bit, because let's face it, uh, most children don't act out their sexuality in school hours on school mm. premises, do they? Not until about the sort of early to mid-teens anyway. Well, according to, I don't think Lyle cares where it would happen. But if they were, well, Lyle doesn't care where it would happen. He yeah. just wants to stop it happening full stop. That's well, he, he thinks homosexuality is a disease that's curable. Well, it's certainly a sinful act. So, so anyway, that was Lyle. <laughs> now, what you might see, dear listener, as you're reading the, the media is uh, the Anglicans uh, came out and said, oh, we've never wanted this rule. Like, it's outrageous to suggest that we wanted this. Mm. And uh, they claim they never asked for this sort of ability to expel gay students. Uh, And I've got here a quote from the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney said, quote, let's be very clear. Anglican schools in Sydney do not expel students for being gay. It is an absurd proposition and it is certainly not something we asked for in our submission to the Ruddock Review. But 
I've had a bit of time on my hands in the last few days. <laughs> and? <laughs> and I went through some of our old articles on this issue and found one that referred to an incident in 2013 when Alex Greenwich proposed to abolish the New South Wales law, which allows religious groups to expel gay students. And at that time, quoted in the newspaper, Laurie, sorry, Laurie Scandrett, chief executive of the Sydney Anglican Schools Corporation, said... Most private schools have a religious ethos. They stand for something. And if these exemptions were removed, that would break down the ability of these schools to maintain whatever their particular ethos is. So there you go. The Anglicans say they didn't want it, but their red-handed court is somebody fairly high up, Chief Executive Sydney Anglican Schools Corporation, a couple of years ago, I said, yeah, we want it. Are you aware of any cases where students were expelled for being gay? We'll get on to students. Well, what we've got is a few examples. By the way, dear listener, if you're listening for the first time, all the show notes have references to all of these things. So click on those and you'll find them. We've got a link to an article, a Baptist Mandura, private school. Mandura, is that Western Australia? It was Western Australia, yeah. Yep. Receives millions of dollars every year in taxpayer funding. Told the father of a seven-year-old girl she would not have been welcome had it known her parents were gay. So I'll let her in, but wouldn't have had they known. Another article where gay parents accused a Catholic primary school of an enrolment snub. So more about enrolment rather than expulsion. So the cases. And, of course... Teachers under this, you know, presumably in two weeks' time the law gets passed, no longer can discriminate discriminate against children in terms of enrolment, but teachers are still fair game. So, and that's certainly happened in the past. So we've had an example where uh, relief teacher Craig Campbell was let go by the South Coast Baptist College in Western Australia after revealing he was in a same-sex relationship and there was nothing he could do about it. And in Queensland, we saw a teacher sacked at a Baptist school for becoming pregnant while unmarried. I'm aware of one woman who was a teacher in the Catholic school system and she became an unmarried mother (coughs) and I'm not aware of her being sacked. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the Catholics have become a little bit uh, more tolerant, do you think? Certainly, than the um, the you know the what, what we refer to as the conservative Christian schools. You know what happens though is it's sort of this inferred discrimination. I mean, people know, so then they act accordingly. So they so they don't bother because they know it's going to cause a problem, even without it actually happening. It sort of happens by implication mm. as well. Mm. It'll be interesting to see. So. One of the other recommendations is that Commonwealth law currently uh, prohibits discrimination on a number of grounds, but not for religious grounds, and they want it to include religious grounds. Mm. So also at the moment, the chaplaincy law says you can only be a chaplain if you are endorsed by a religious organisation. So presumably if that recommendation number 15 comes through, the chaplaincy program will have to be open to secular ones. Exactly. Let's hope. 
Which is exactly what Julia Gillard tried to do with the whole program when she was Prime Minister. Yes. and She wanted to have secular chaplains. She did. And then uh, Abbott Abbott got in and said, no, we're going to change that to make it, you've got to be religious. Yeah. Even though you're not supposed to proselytise. Exactly. I mean, that's a strange contradiction in itself, isn't it? Mm. You're not allowed to proselytise, but you have to be religious to be one. Yeah. What's that about? Yeah. Maybe we should get Ruddock to do an inquiry on that and then, and then and Morrison then, to do an interview yeah. and fix the whole thing. I mean, I've, I've mentioned it before, but from my own personal experience of working in a state high school with a chaplain, uh, he absolutely did proselytise. Mm. I, I saw it. Mm. You know, I, I witnessed it myself. Yeah. So. Labor Party are coming out, of course, saying, oh, yes, we must change these laws. They're gutless, Scott. They haven't been gutless. They've been very gutless because they were the ones that introduced these laws in the first place. Mm. As recently as January, Tanya Plimasek said that they had no intention of of touching these discrimination laws. I don't want to get the Catholic Church schools exactly. offside. Yeah, um, Tanya Plimasek's really starting to worry me. Mm. Oh. We've, I've seen some arguments. Well, uh, Andrew Bolt came out and said that the discrimination would be okay, provided the schools don't receive any taxpayer funds. And yeah. a few secular groups came out saying similar things, saying, oh, well, if they, um, if they didn't take our money, it, would be, it wouldn't be so bad. I don't know exactly how I feel about that. I mean, the cold-hearted rationalist in me says that if you remove their government funding, the whole thing goes belly up anyway. So maybe it's not a bad thing because if you've got a school that can actually discriminate, then they can't get government funding, then they're going to have to close. That was the cold-hearted rationalist in me. But then I also saw something you wrote in response to that article where Mm. you said, I can't remember, I've got it here somewhere, where you said... No, keep talking. I said it's like a cake shop. I mean, we don't provide money to the cake shop, but we still regulate them and tell them don't discriminate. So we don't need to provide money to a school in order to tell it don't discriminate. And so, yeah, I think um, I saw. Yeah, I mean, this is is what you wrote here. You said just because you're off the government teat doesn't mean that you can do what you like. Society can still impose some minimum standards of behaviour, and I think that's right. Mm. I'm not exactly 100% certain which way I go, but I think I'm probably leaning towards Trevor's, Trevor's line there that you've got to impose a minimum standard. Yeah. They shouldn't be receiving government funding anyway. Well, they shouldn't. At the same be. time, yeah. it, that doesn't give them open slather to do whatever they like. Apparently in the UK they um, tie the funding to um, accepting these mm. sorts of conditions. Yeah. Right. Um in the media, do you know what? I couldn't find anything in the Courier Mail on Monday. Couldn't find anything in the Australian. They've just gone silent on the issue. Because um, <laughs> it's blowing up in their face. Yeah, ABC and The Guardian had you some stuff. You read the Courier Mail? Um, my mother gets it, yeah. It takes about five minutes. <laughs> so yeah. David Mars, he wrote really well on this issue. He really um, – did you read his piece at all? It was I pretty good. did read it, yeah. I've got a link to a dear listener if you're wanting more reading on this. So there we go. Who knows where this will end up, but it's been a beautiful own goal and the whole thing has just blown up in the face mm. of and the religious And it's made Morrison right. look extremely weak, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. It has, you know. Mm. 
But anyway, I think the final word should go to Trevor when he said the when he put the subtitle on the Religious Freedom Review. Oh, he yes. said their plot backfires, causing religious right wing nutters to kick an own goal. Well done, Trevor. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that was good. We toasted a good week in secularism when we opened our beers because <laughs> we haven't had many of we them. We haven't had many in the last three years, have we? <laughs> but this was a good one. <laughs> right. In other news, did we really need the Senate to, to have a resolution? Of, um, Pauline Hanson put forward a, re- a re- asked the Senate to acknowledge two things, the deplorable rise of anti-white racism and attacks on Western civilization, and that it's okay to be white. Thoughts, gentlemen, on, on what happened and... <laughs> I haven't noticed a rise in anti-white racism <laughs> per se, have you? No. But, well, she's, 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 look, she's, um, you know, she's working to her racism, base, though. isn't she? Yeah. Those people who do feel under threat, um, whether it's real or imagined. Um, but, look, I was very impressed uh, this morning by Jacinta Price, our, our friend, the Councillor in Alice Springs, mm-hmm. and she was interviewed about this, and Jacinta Price just she said, "Look, there's racism on both sides of this um, this issue." She said she has personally experienced uh, racism from some of her indigenous brothers and sisters. She said, uh, "You know, she claims indigenous heritage on her father's side, I think, and European heritage on her mother's side." And she said she's married to a guy who claims Scottish heritage and she said she attended a function where there were a lot of Indigenous people with her husband and uh, she said her husband was subjected to a fair amount of scorn and ridicule. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's for me she's one of the most balanced and fair-minded and just sensible people, you know, who's um, speaking on this issue in Australia. Certainly uh, different groups are speaking in a racist manner about white people, but it's just ineffectual in terms of actually causing a problem. Yes, but it is. The, the thing is that our, our civic debate has just degenerated mm. into identity politics exactly. of rather than the issue, it's instead of playing the ball, we're always playing the man and it's what group is this, is this person yeah. And let's make a decision based on their identity. So the left has just fallen into the trap of continually saying, well, this person's from a disadvantaged minority ethnic group, therefore they're right, and the white person is wrong. So when you do that a thousand and one times, as we mentioned last week with um, Hillary Clinton referring to the basket of deplorables, if you just insult the other side all the time... They're going to feel persecuted like a Christian, absolutely. Basically, yeah. Yeah. so you can understand people just sick of the insult. Now, it, it, there's no genuine, actual effect on them, but they're just sick of the insult and unable to understand it. But yes. that's that's what happens. That we're reduced to identity mm. politics. That Indeed. that uh, that's what happened. But, um, dear listener, as, as you know, the, the dear patrons to this podcast who are supporting us and allowing us to um, subscribe to a whole bunch of different news 
outlets. One of them is Crikey. And <laughs> I'm going to quote a bit from Crikey on this issue. Um, the Greens leader opened his mouth yesterday and said the worst thing he could. He revived my long aversion to the speech of all politicians and to voting Green. <laughs> I vote for no party that risks inflaming real-life racial hatred for some brief online reward. He took the risk and then he said this. So apparently the leader of the Greens said, um, quote, it's not just okay to be white in Australia, it's actually a ticket to winning the lotto. And the guy from Crikey said, well, that's false, that that the wealth is largely held by very few um, is, is what's true, but any speech that seeks to divide us in hate is a lie. So... He's, he's right on that issue. And that's what Hanson and her followers are responding to, is this yes. this uh, exaggerated um, promotion of white guilt, you know. It's, mm. it's this idea that all people of European heritage in Australia should somehow feel responsible for what happened a long time ago in this mm. country. You Crazy, know, I, yeah. I mean, it'd be, like, it'd be like, you know, anyone of Irish heritage hating English people. Mm. It's irrational. In the 21st century, it's an irrational hatred mm. and it has no basis in, you know, in, in any kind of privilege enjoyed by uh, English people. I mean, most English people are not, you know, are not oppressing Irish people and most English people historically didn't oppress Irish people, just like most of our ancestors in Australia didn't especially oppress Aboriginal people, you know. Mm. Some did and in very terrible ways. And look, I fully support uh, in our education systems children uh, receiving a very thorough, comprehensive and honest appraisal of our history post-settlement, but at the same time not uh, with the intention of making them feel that they are responsible or should somehow feel guilty about it. Mm. But, um, you know, <laughs> Hanson's playing... So she's being as divisive. She is. Being she's divisive. falling into the yes. into the trap, and and so you know that sort of resolution is just a divisive. It is divisive. thing that we can yeah. well do without. It was completely unnecessary, unnecessary and divisive. Yeah. But the former commissioner for finding racism under every rock didn't help matters much, did he? No, but he's gone. He's gone. Replaced with somebody else who. Yeah, I don't know what the new bloke's like. Do you? Apparently, he's not going to look as closely. It seems so. Hey. Speaking of Hanson's sort of motion, the first time round the governments in the Senate supported her and then <laughs> they thought, whoops. They, they thought yeah, better they thought, Oh, God, what have we done? <laughs> whoops. But uh, also Lucy Gichui supported it. Yes. The Minister for Aboriginal Affairs supported it. <laughs> that's, that's right. But then they, um, then they went, ooh, that's not a good look particularly with a by-election with a 15% Jewish community coming up and we've got this white nationalist sort of stuff. <laughs> so, so, so Another what, own goal. So they ordered a second vote and joined the opposition in voting the motion down. But they claim it was a mistake that they voted in favour of Hanson's resolution the first time round. And this is, this is what they said. Matthias Cormann said... That was a fault with their internal process for letting senators know how they should vote on the bills of the day. And later, Attorney General Christian Porter said, 
The advice was sent out from his office without my knowledge. A staff member had sent it out without checking, he said. It appears that the very large number of motions on which my office views are routinely sought. This one was not escalated to me because it was interpreted in my office as a motion opposing racism. Dear listener, we've got staff members in Parliament House looking at the motions coming forward and just telling the whole bunch of the government, you're all going to vote this way. Like, who is this staff member who gets to do this, even on rudimentary things like this? Like, but that's not so rudimentary either. I mean, I know. wouldn't you think something as, as, as potentially um, inflammatory as a bill about racism, wouldn't you think the minister would want to check that first? Exactly. But what a powerful person working somewhere in, in the office where they're just able to say, yeah, I had a look at that. Okay, I'll get the government to vote this way. That's my decision. And everybody follows, including a black woman, without question. Nobody stops and goes, oh, hang on, this doesn't smell right. This is the whole point. I mean, wouldn't you think that if it had Pauline Hanson's name on it, that they would all sit there and think to themselves, hang on a minute, what's this woman trying to get us to do? Yes. You, you think alarm bells would be ringing. Wouldn't well, you? you would, yeah. Particularly mm. since her burqa stunt in the Senate. Mm. Mm. They'd be having a very careful look at any motion she came up with, wouldn't you think? One would have thought so, yeah. Mm. You'd think so. Right. Uh, next item on the agenda, the advertising of the Everest horse race on the sales of the Sydney Opera House. Let me play you a little clip, which you may not have heard. This is Alan Jones speaking oh, with the God in heaven. with the manager of the Opera House. Here, here we go. And the Opera House CEO, Louise Heron, is on the line. Louise, good morning. Good morning, Alan. Louise, people reading the Telegraph newspaper today on the front page will be saying, who the hell do you think you are? You don't own the Opera House. We own it. We own yeah. the Opera House. You don't have a right to fence it off. Okay. So the Opera House is a World Heritage List. Now, hang on. We know all that, Louise. We know that. We just, no, don't, don't well, give hang us... Hang on just a second. So we have a policy that protects our World Heritage status. Oh, so and they're going to damage it, are they? They're going to... Is the land is, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We know all this stuff, Louise. We own the Opera House. Do you get that message? You don't. You manage it. And if you can't give the go-ahead for this to happen to an event that's providing $100 million to the economy, delivering a tourism boom to Sydney, to send Sydney around the world. If I were Gladys Berejiklian, I'd pick up the phone and sack you today. He's a... Scott, now I've got to go back <laughs> and edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke about defamation. Yeah. Oh, we did too. Yes, okay. We, that was a bit over the top, Scott. <laughs> okay, that was a bit over the top. Fine. <laughs> Dear listener... Uh, I just had to edit out potentially defamatory, <laughs> <laughs> defamatory remarks by Scott. Yeah, Paul, don't say stuff like that in future. <laughs> so, yeah, so defamatory remarks were made and have now been edited out and unpublished. So They're there we on go. the cutting room floor. They as are. Look, who listens to that guy? Who listens to this guy? He is rusted on he, – his audience are rusted on conservative voters. They're probably going to vote for Cory Bernardi's Australian Conservatives, but then after that their next vote is going to end up in the Liberal Party. So you've got to ask yourself the question, why does anyone from the Liberal government bend over backwards for him? God alone knows, because 
they're never going to go out and vote for the Labor Party. His his listeners are never going to go out and vote for the Labor Party. So it makes no sense whatsoever for Gladys Berejiklian to bend over backwards for him. It made no sense whatsoever. It's, a, it's just a poisonous voice to have. It is, yeah. Sydney Airways, people listening to that. Oh, it is, yeah. What, yeah, what very bitter, much so. What a bitter audience he must mm. create. Hopefully that's not defamatory. Mm. Anyway, well, I'm going to let that one through. <laughs> You're going to let that one through? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I know there are people in, in my immediate family who, who listen to it. Yes. I think he's the I, ants' pants. You know, I, when, when they told me that, I said, well, look, he's just a professional rabble-rouser, that guy. He just mm. likes stirring things up and that's... That's his. Uh, that's his sort of calling card, isn't it? Stirring shit up. Anyway, but this is the whole point. Sorry, is, you know, is that defamatory? Well, you know no. how he said. He said to her. They said, you know, if I was Gladys Berry Jiglin, I'd ring you up and sack you. Yeah. I mean, that's... who the hell does he think he is? Wow. Well, and just not allowing the woman to speak. Exactly. That was the whole. Spoke over the top of her. It was absolutely vile. The sort of Fox News style yeah. of stuff that. Get from I mean, States. if you're going to invite somebody on mm. to explain their position, you let them speak. Mm. He quite deliberately invited her on so that he could publicly... Humiliate just, her. Yeah, humiliate her and shout her down. Yeah, terrible. Very rude. You know, also, you know, we own the opera house and the, the implication was that it was in the public interest. The little guy, the working class man, owns oh. the pub, owns the opera house, and you, you elitist snob, are preventing we, the common man, mm. from from, you know, using the opera house, which is completely the opposite. It is, it is an elitist nonsense. project. Yeah, absolutely. For an elitist horse race. I mean, your working class people might. Blow their pa- their pay packet on the on the horses, yeah. But they certainly don't get to benefit very much from these yeah. uh, high end horse races, yeah, do they? Yeah. So anyway, Scott Morrison he said this is one of the biggest events of the year. Why not put it on the biggest billboard Sydney has? That's the sort of mm. crass, uncultured comment that I expect from Scomo. Yes. There was a, 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 a and he said uh, I come from a tourist background. These events generate massive opportunities for the state, for the city. Anything for a buck. Uh, There was a good comment by Mungo McCallum who said, they say that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) (laughs) And perhaps if the only life experience you have is in PR, everything looks like a billboard. That's good, Mungo. That's really good. He's good. Yeah. Chris Morrison was the guy in charge of the uh, Lara Bingle Where the Hell Are You campaign. Mm. Where the bloody hell are you, I mm. believe. Somebody who we have not agreed with much, Waleed Ali, he actually wrote very well on this topic. He did, yes. It was very well written. Um, and he talked about this, you know, civic open spaces that we can just enjoy for what they are. And I thought it was... It was the first thing I've ever really agreed with from him and it was because he didn't speak in identities of subgroups. He just spoke about Australians mm. as, as a whole and it's good to, it was good to read. Absolutely it was, yeah. So that well was the done. difference. Yeah. Well, yeah. So once he broke Maybe out. Maybe he's of, been listening to the podcast. What do you think? I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt yeah. it. 
Final thing, your friend Brendan O'Neill from Spite. I like Brendan. Mm, did you know what he said on this? No, I didn't. Mm. He said, why didn't these protesters kick up a storm when Samsung took over the sales of the Opera House to launch its Galaxy S4 smartphone in 2013? Wasn't aware they did. Were you? Mm. Couldn't tell you. So there you go. Apparently they did. And I guess the point is they should have, Brendan, and... Sometimes things explode into the public conscience mm. and sometimes they don't, and this well, one did. And I think this blew up because um, uh, Alan Jones was the one that was pushing it. I think mm. that a lot of that protest was probably yeah. people thinking, no, we're not going to get told by this man again what we should do. Yes. Yeah. And it was an interesting pro- protest that was staged with people showing up yes. with uh, torches and shining them on the Opera House, a whole... There was several thousand of them, and they yeah. managed to sort of somewhat disrupt the display, didn't they? They did. The chaser came out, and they projected onto it a billboard with um, "Want to advertise here? Call Alan," and they had his mobile phone number. Or something like that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 So that was good. Oh dear. Um, while I have a sip of beer, we're about to launch into what's wrong with America and uh, we'll just play a little intro to, to that. Speak to me, dear master. Bring it up a little bit. Will you please tell me what is wrong with America? Yes, dear listener, what's wrong with America? Well, the whole uh, Kavanaugh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford incident is pretty darn ugly, I think. So we've got uh, Kavanaugh, who, Brett Kavanaugh, who is wanting to get a position on the Supreme Court. He has to go through a process where he's supposedly grilled and vetted by the Senate and before he can take his position. And he is a very, very right-wing religious nutter who is potentially going to reverse decisions like Roe v. Wade and other important ones and drag the US system Backwards. back into some handmaid's tale. Is it handmaid, handmaiden's tale? Um, handmaid's tale. Um, type of... Existence. If he gives, if he's got half a chance, and he will have as a Supreme Court judge for the next thirty years. So, what we had was Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was um, at a party with him thirty odd years ago, and she came out and said, "Well, he attacked her and molested her at a party." And it's one of those things where allegations from thirty years ago. You've got to feel uncomfortable about those crueling somebody's career later on without good, solid evidence found by a jury, I would have thought. So some sympathy for the argument that these things happened a long time ago and you can't um, 
it's too late. Unless you take him to court and actually get a conviction. And then by all means. But it's not a great forum for trying to sort these things out. Anyway, there's a bunch of other things that he's done that uh, would definitely look misleading and make him seem to be incapable of being a good judge because he was very partisan and he misstated his involvement in various other issues historically. So can confidently say not a particularly nice guy. No, he's not. But even if he's not elected, they'll just find another not particularly nice guy to take the role. So, you know, ultimately what's the matter? Someone made the point that that's quite a distinct difference between the American and the Australian system. Yes. So our basically Prime Minister and Cabinet decide on High Court appointments and don't... But they're not for life and that's the difference. Yes. They're until a specified retirement Yeah, I think it might be about 70 or something like that. Something like that. Which I think is sensible, not that necessarily men over 70 are incapable of making good judgment, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it removes this, you know, American system where they're in there until they literally cark it, even if they're beyond the stage where they they are capable of making good judgments. Well, but the key problem with the American system isn't so is much their longevity. So and it's not so much that it's so partisan, it's because they have uh, the Supreme Court judges there are making decisions based on a Bill of Rights. So they have far more power than our High Court judges to influence decisions that affect everyday people. So, so they've got genuine power over a wide range of issues. Our High Court doesn't. So they're just interpreting the Constitution and other legislation that our Parliament comes up with, but there's no Bill of Rights for them to be active on and to be interpreting. So hence, we don't care so much. So it's the Bill of Rights that makes the Supreme Court in America an activist Bill of uh, Supreme Court. Correct. Mm. That's the difference, yeah. So while we're on that topic, though, you might remember the abortion clinic exclusion zone issue. So our states are enacting legislation to stop Christian groups from praying and protesting outside abortion clinics. Well, harassing women who go Mm. there for a medical um, procedure. Mm. Mm. Uh, Concurrently with that, there was a case where Bob Brown was wanting to protest some sort of tree felling operation and was prevented from doing so. And he claimed a common law right of protest, kind of the sort of thing you'd find in a Bill of Rights that he said was just part of the common law. And the High Court has said, well, that's an argument with some merit that we want to investigate, and that's currently before our High Court at the moment where they may decide, yes, there is a common law right to protest and therefore Christian groups can um, infringe uh, on these 150-metre zones. So there you go. We won't have our own example of of interventionist judges. Would that not also give them the right to protest absolutely anywhere if that was interpreted that way? Would they not be able to sort of protest in a cinema showing a, a sexy movie that they didn't like or something like that? 
who knows where it'll end up. And I would have thought a state could always override common law. I mean, normally, if there's a common law law of some sort, a state can normally just legislate, legislate to, overdo the, to overturn it. Yeah. So um, I don't know where it'll end up. But it's still an example of the sorts of things that happen in the US all the time that we fortunately don't have to put up with too much. Anyway, we've digressed. Back to Kavanagh and Dr Christine Basie-Ford. So it's a tricky one in some sense. Um, I 100% believe what she said, but there's a principle here that's Absolutely, important. I do too. Yeah, I, think yeah. she was, I think she was bang on the money. She was yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know. But the, the ugly side of this is the reaction of Donald Trump. Yes, that and, was disgusting. And the Donald Trump supporters. So what I've got here is the President of the United States mocking Dr. Blasey Ford in front of his constituents. Have a listen to this. I had one beer, right? I had one beer. Well, you think it was... Nope, it was one beer. Oh, good. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What neighborhood was it in? I don't know. Where's the house? I don't know. Upstairs, downstairs, where was it? I don't know. But I had one beer. That's the only thing I remember. And a man's life is in tatters. A man's life is shattered. You hear that crowd in the background? It when was you, what was really disgusting, wasn't it? When you watch the video, you see them smiling and laughing. Women. Yeah as well behind him in the crowd, smiling and laughing. It's truly disgusting. But, you know, and it's total rubbish what he was saying. So uh, have a listen to this next clip. How many years ago was it? I don't know. In the summer of 1982. What neighbourhood was it in? I don't know. I attended a small gathering at a house in the Bethesda area. Upstairs, downstairs, where was it? I don't know. I went up a very narrow set of stairs leading from the living room to a second floor to use the restroom. When I got to the top of the stairs, I was pushed from behind into a bedroom across from the bathroom. The president was stating the facts. He was stating facts that were given during Dr. Ford's testimony. But I had one beer. That's the only thing I remember. With what degree of certainty do you believe Brett Kavanaugh assaulted you? 100%. So not only was he mocking her, but he was just outright lying. But he does that all the time. I know. I mean, he lies every time he opens his mouth, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So, and yet they don't care, do they? His support base, they really don't care. I've got a link to an article here that says, it shows without question that we have allowed our republic to fall into the hands of a sociopath whose feelings for his fellow human beings can be measured against a poker chip. It shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the better angels of our nation have been sold out to anger and greed and stone hatred. It shows precisely the depth to which our fellow citizens will follow this bag of old and rancid sins. Some of those citizens know better. Some of them don't. All of them are dangerous blockheads. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> I think there's some hope for us. So while Americans cheer Trump for abusing Dr. Blasey Ford, 
Australians are telling our politicians to fuck off for daring to put a sign on the Opera House. At least, you know, we've got some sort of... And not only that, criticism of our leaders happening. Absolutely, but we shouldn't we shouldn't generalise too much about the the um, the character of Americans based on that aberration of a okay. president. Fifty percent of them, then forty nine percent of them. No, no. If you look at the voting the voting <coughs> stats, you know they don't have compulsory voting. So, how many people actually voted for Donald Trump? So, very, very lot less than fifty. We still got to blame the ones who didn't vote for not voting. Well, absolutely. But that's that. That's You've got, apathy. You, that's that's a product of this. So, you, actually, we could blame more than fifty percent of Americans because the non-voters plus the voters for Trump can all be blamed. A lot it of is, people are apathetic, though. A lot yeah, it of is. people, if they're not forced to vote, won't vote. Mm. It is one of those things. Um, you know, I've got a soft spot for a voluntary vote. Um, there is no doubt about that. But I can understand when you do have it all brought out to you like this, the benefits of a compulsory vote. Um, I'm still not 100% convinced of it, but there is certainly some benefits there. And, you know, that was the thing that I listened to this morning on Radio National and um, uh, there was some discussion around the whole thing. And the Democrats have got to shoulder a lot of blame for this because there were a lot of Democrat voters who decided not to vote because they assumed that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. And that was the problem. Yeah. Well, on the basis of that video, with that crowd cheering him on as he mocks a sexual assault victim, I'm saying we should pull out of Anzus. If we are attacked, we can't trust Trump to help us. And if they are attacked, they're not worth saving, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) They can take care of themselves. We can't. So I'm not pulling out of Anzus. I'm not in favour of that because we need the Yanks. And look, you know, it's one presidency. Uh, who knows what the next president might be like. And uh, we know that there are a lot of very good people in America and a lot of very good Americans who would come to our defence if we were to need it. I reckon you'll see Elizabeth Warren run in the next poll. I think and, and she would be I a think very she fine would probably, candidate. She'd be an exceptionally good candidate and I think she'll win too. You mm-hmm. know, I reckon she could actually beat Donald Trump in 2020. What do you think of this on that note? What do you think of the submarine debacle? Apparently, there's a bit of a glitch in the contract yeah. with the French submarine yeah, builders, and they're having trouble reaching agreement on the submarines. Yeah, I, yeah. I, we don't know the details, do we? We so don't know exactly should, what they can't agree on. It's why we should pull out of it now and pull set up, you know, pull out of it before they have any money, more money, and then you just turn around buy and the say, Japanese, buy subs. the Japanese submarines. We could get twice as many for the same price, couldn't we? Twice. See, I'm in favour of lots of subs. I know you. Twice, we could get about three times six or seven Japanese sub for the. We can get a Japanese sub for about six hundred, seven hundred million, as opposed to four point one six billion for one that for we're one paying French for sub. one sub. Ooh. I suspect the talks are breaking down because somebody's looking at the plans and they've given it to an engineer and they said, you know, this submarine, this really big submarine, this huge submarine that's been designed to run on nuclear power right. so that the entire submarine from the ground up it's always nuclear powered. Not going to work. We want one of those right. with a diesel engine in it. And the engineers are saying, are you for real? And they're trying to draw up a contract. And the engineers on both sides are just going, give us a break. Yeah. 
It was a mistake that, at the outset. That's hopefully what is happening. Yeah. Um, but My just, understanding was the Japanese were quite prepared to build the subs down in Adelaide too, weren't they? Yeah, and they've come out recently and said, oh, we're still open potentially. Yeah, hopefully that's what happens. Yeah. And, and look, I don't dislike the French by any means, um, mm. but I think... Yeah, but when you've got $4.1 billion yeah, yeah. on one hand versus $600 million on another... But I think we should be blaming our government for that stupid deal. Absolutely, yes. we should Whereas be. Whereas the Japanese, I think, would be very fine allies. Uh, it's a democratic, freedom-loving country. Uh, yeah, but they're they've... in a very tight part of Asia with uh, communist China up against their butts. I think they would be very delighted to have Australia as a very close ally with closer military links. Yeah, but the problem is the Japanese have got a pacifist constitution, which means they can't uh, come to our aid. No, they, they'll change that. Give them right. time, they'll change <laughs> Because that constitution was drawn up by the Americans and the Japanese are pretty much... They've reached the stage where they've, they've sort of said, yeah, okay, it, it had its place at the time, but they've grown up. And they don't need that constitution anymore. They'll change it. Mm. Speaking of constitutions, just back to the um, American Kavanaugh Senate oh, hearings. Yes, we got off, off track. Yeah, yeah, it's a good little diversion. Good. And, and we're going to divert again off it straight away, <laughs> even though we're back on track now, is that um, that's a process that is vetted by the Senate. And, and Senates are a problem around the world. So I saw this chart which showed... Um, the, the Senate system in the US. And basically each state gets two senators per state regardless of population. So the problem is you've got all these redneck states um, full of yobbos who are voting Republican nutbag senators in. And, you know, you've got three men and a dog in 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 Idaho or something, or, or Wisconsin, or not Wisconsin, but some of the, you know, really desolate states, and they can vote in two senators, whereas a state like California gets two senators. So it's a terribly undemocratic system. It's similar here, though. Yeah, it is very similar here, and this is the whole point. You've got to have something that balances up the smaller state's interest against the bigger state's. Well, do you? You do, because otherwise you end up having – otherwise you could do away with the Senate if it's in entirety if you wanted to go down that. If you were going to give New South Wales the same number of senators that were um, – because the states are always picking on other states. I know they're picking on each other's, on other states. They're so not. You, I'm being facetious. They do pick on each other. You know, you can see them. You can see them in their whole nonsense over the GST carve up. How they're all ganging up on Western Australia right now. Now, Western Australia's got a legitimate bitch over that because they've got they were getting twenty eight percent of the GST they collected coming back to them. That was wrong. And so, when you got a situation like that, surely anyone with half a brain could but, sit there and say, "Okay, we've got to we've got to put but, a floor in there." But the Senate system doesn't help if six states want to, you know, five states want to gang up on a sixth. Like it doesn't help, does it? If they want to pick them off, well, if, <laughs> if they want to pick them off one at a time, they could. But it would require them all ganging up together on one of them, and that makes a whole, it a lot more difficult. It let, does make let, it a lot more. Let, difficult. let me give some facts here because I looked at the Australian system then as well. Yeah, it caused me to. So. Um, uh, it, our Senate consists of 76 senators, 12 from each of the six states and two from each of the territories. mainland territories. 
Now, Tasmania has 515,000 people. New South Wales has 7.5 million. So a Tasmanian votes uh, 14.6 times uh, compared to someone from New South Wales. In the Senate only. Yes. Mm. But Not still. in the House of Reps. Yeah, in the House of, in the House of Representatives, yeah. you've, got five se- you've got five seats in Tasmania as opposed to 30-odd in New South Wales, isn't mm. it? That's where, yeah. you get your, that's where you get your population disparities. And you that's the, why that's the House that makes the yeah, laws. That's the House of Representatives makes the laws and then you've got the House of Review, which is made up of the Senate, which has got a very wacky... So you're quite happy with this? I'm happy with it. I'm happy with it because what it does is it, it, it helps even out the difference between the larger states and the smaller states. So can I remind you that Tas- the Tasmanian Senate... Gives us Erica Betts. <laughs> it does give us Erica Betts. It also gave us Bob Brown and uh, what's her name? Got a laugh out of the twelfth man. That's good. What was the other woman's name? Uh, the leader of the Greens. She was the deputy under Bob Brown. What was her name? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was also from Tasmania. Yes. Tasmania's also given us Jackie Lambie. <laughs> it has thrown up a whole lot of people out of there. And you're right because you've only got five hundred and fifteen thousand down there. So, I mean, it's once been described, you only need your neighbour's dog to vote for you and you can get into the Senate. It is very true. But it is a price we have to pay to have this system that we've got which helps live, even out the differences between the bigger states and smaller states. Yeah, look, I wouldn't claim that we have the, the perfect democratic system in Australia. I'm, no, we don't, we don't have anything perfect. The, the New Zealand system itself. Well, a unicameral house, yeah, that's, that's no problem but at all. But with a, what is it? With preferential, um, with a proportional proportional representation, representation yeah. Mm. Right. But at least we don't have the American system. <laughs> or, even worse, the Chinese communist system. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, the, the Chinese communist system would be the worst, yeah. Or the Russian gangster state system. Exactly. Scott Morrison is banging on about tax cuts for corporations and small business. If you have a go in this country, we'll give you a go. You'll get a go. If you have a go, you'll get a go. That's right. Except if you're a gay teacher wanting to have a go at teaching, but that's we've dealt with that already. But, you know, if you have a go, you'll get a go is what he's saying. And if we bring forward these tax cuts for small business companies, Mum and dad operations, it'll lead to further investment, which will grow our economy, leading to more jobs. Trickle down will happen, you know, the world will be wonderful. Um, just a reminder of uh, our old friend Landon Hardbottom on this issue, because we've spoken about this over the years. This is one of his old ones. Cheryl, where's the girl who helps me with this? I'm Trying to leave a message for that fist fellow and that velvet glove person. What what do you mean she's on lunch? She needs lunch? Goodness me. I have to pay sick leave. I have to pay for annual leave. This is why we need corporate tax breaks in Australia. <laughs> you know what gives me the shit, Scott, is this whole talk about corporate tax cuts and people talk about it without any reference to dividend imputation. Exactly. Yeah. And you cannot discuss this issue without talking about the realities of our tax system. I thought we should go through a little experiment. I think you'll be up for this. Mm. <laughs> okay. 
So, um, so the government uh, has got a ten billion dollar plan to accelerate the the tax cuts to twenty five percent for smaller companies. Well, companies earning up to fifty million dollars, you know, if you call that small, uh, that's that's the gross income, not, yeah. not the net income. Still, it's yeah. a fair bit of money. Well, it's a fair chunk of change. Yeah, you know, but okay. you know, so they the, might have very narrow profit yeah. margins on that money. Yeah. So. so I think the current rate is twenty seven and a half. For yes, the small right. companies, mm-hmm. yeah. And once somebody gets over uh, 90000 individually, then the tax rate is 37%, I think, mm-hmm. is my calculations. So let's run through how tax works. So let's we've got a, a small mum and dad operation, gross revenue of a $1 million and net profit of... 300,000 and from that 300,000 they've been paying themselves 200,000 through regular wages for example throughout the year so there's actually 100,000 left in the in the kitty so 300,000 before they pay themselves and they pay themselves 100 grand each so 100 left in the bank account um what do most people do in that situation? They spend the money. I mean, they, they, you can't help yourself. You've got a hundred grand sitting in the bank account. You've got, you know, private school fees. You've got a holiday you want to have. You've got a toy you want to buy. People um, spend money that that they have in that situation. So, in that situation, the hundred thousand dollars is going to go to that. They're going to extract it out of the company, and they're going to. Give it to themselves. Pay that so, as a dividend. Yeah. So if it's in the company and the company has paid 27.5% tax on that, when they extract it out of the company and give it to themselves, they're going to have to pay 9.5% extra when it lands in their hands. Mm-hmm. If the company tax rate drops to 25%, then when they extract it out and give it to themselves, they're going to have to pay an extra 12%. So they actually are no better off either way if the corporate tax cut is there or not. Once they extract it out, they're in exactly the same position. The corporate tax cut does not help them at all if they extract the money. Mm. So the only people it helps are those who are making so much money that they don't have to extract it out of the company and can actually afford to have the excess sitting there, i.e. the really wealthy people are the ones (laughs) who benefit from this. And, you know, dear listener, if you're listening for the first time, we've been doing this for three years. We've been banging on about these issues. Two years ago, we did a piece on this and we found an article from the Council of Small Business of Australia and it said that of 870,000 small businesses, so 870,000 small businesses, only 40,000 would be likely to use a tax cut bonus to expand their operations. So it just doesn't – it's BS – Scott Morrison, 
to suggest that this is going to be a boon for the economy. So why it's is he doing it? Because He's people good. believe in the trickle-down effect mm. and the lobbyists are knocking on his door every day from large wealthy companies saying, we want a tax break. So we lose $10 billion in revenue from the really rich people who don't extract it out of the companies and we can't afford to build hospitals and roads and bridges and all the other things that we need. So it's a con. It's a con. It is a con, yeah. I've got a link to an article as well. Our tax rate compared to the rest of the world, you have the the basic uh, nominal rate that you see in the tax act, like I've just said, for companies, it's 27.5 and it's going to go down to 25. So you've got that rate, but you've also got effective rates because there's different write-offs requirements in different jurisdictions and there's all these funny little different taxes that apply and don't apply in different situations. So there's an effective rate as well. And there's a link to an article that basically says if you look at the, at the face rate and if you look at the effective rate and you line up the OECD countries, we are so smack bang in the middle that we couldn't be more middle if we tried. Like it's total rubbish to suggest that we pay a high tax rate compared to similar countries. There we go. Links to all of it. Check it out. It makes no sense whatsoever why the hell ScoMo is continuing to push this barrow. He ought to just take the whole he ought to take it on the chin and say, Radio, the Labor Party's defeated us in the Senate, we're gonna move on. And then he's got a hell of a war chest that he can use to pay down. He could either use it to pay down government debt or he could use it to hand over massive income tax cuts to the rest of us. Right. Which he's going to need to buy his way back into office. Of course, when you're in trouble politically, what you need is a distraction. And and somebody just handed in a minute. He was sitting at his desk going, oh, no, this religious freedom thing's blowing up in my face and (laughs) I've got all these these other issues – Somebody give me a distraction and somebody's grabbed a dusty old envelope and handed it to him and on the front it said, uh, let's move our embassy to Jerusalem and reconsider the Iran nuclear deal. You know, a few weeks ago you had that story that said that, um, well, what is it, if, you, if you're lonely in politics, get a dog, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah. he said it could be rewritten in the Trump era, if you're lonely in politics, get yourself an Aussie. Yeah. And the story about ScoMo getting on the phone with President Trump and having a great old time, I thought to myself at the time that you were full of it. You thought I was full of it? Yeah. Oh, Scott. You're right, though. <laughs> it's clear that he yeah. is, ScoMo is following Trump, you know, because he wants to move our, our embassy out of Tel Aviv into East Jerusalem. Makes no sense whatsoever. ScoMo thinks Trump's a great guy. He's a dickhead. Well, gee. There's an old by-election coming up. Yeah, I know, with 15% of the population being Jewish. 15% of which are Jewish. Yeah. Maybe this will sound really good for that 15%. Clearly, this is dog whistling Yeah, where he's saying to the Jewish community in Wentworth, you know, I'm on your side. <laughs> That's probably what he's trying to do, but I don't think it's going to work. It's disgusting. I mean... I mean, for seventy years we have for seventy years we've had a bipartisan policy in this country where you do not shift your embassy from Tel Aviv. You know, Tel Aviv is the 
uh, maybe not the official capital of Israel, but is the effective capital of Israel, and that should remain the effective capital. It's the diplomatic capital because of the issues with With Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Yeah, exactly. So it's intentionally that one. And there's no net benefit for Australia in shifting it. So the only reason he's doing it is to try to win votes in Wentworth. It's obvious. And it's just signalling to the rest of the world we are the US lapdogs. Mm. Whatever they do, we will do it. Yeah, but this whole thing about the Iran nuclear deal, that is garbage. You know, Iran's... Correct. The, the nuclear deal with Iran is actually much, much better than the, just the recent proposition that's been negotiated with the North Koreans. So, dear listener, Iran was within, uh, you know, getting very, very close to nuclear capability to, to be able to make its own nuclear bomb. And the Obama administration negotiated with them to stop their program, to allow inspectors to come in, to make sure it wasn't progressing and in return give them some trade with the rest of the world that they'd been excluded from. And, you know, almost unanimously throughout the world considered a good idea. It was a very good idea. And for our dickhead Prime Minister Scott Morrison to consider abandoning that... uh, Here's what he said. We do share real concerns about how Iran's capability can be very disp- can be a very destabilising force in the Middle East, particularly for allies like Israel. <laughs> nudge, nudge, <laughs> wink, wink. So I'm acknowledging that concern and saying the position we've held up till now continues to be our position until if we decided to alter it. But I'm flagging we'll be taking a close look at that. You. So he's I, not really going to do anything. He's just virtue signaling. Dog whistling. Mm. This, this is sending a signal dog that whistling. a certain segment can hear. You know, the rest of the Australian population couldn't give two hoots about that in the same way they knew nothing about discrimination against gays in schools. But there's a segment of the population, i.e. the Jewish community, that, like a dog whistle, is going, what's that? Oh, Hey, he's on our side. <laughs> All right, hey, fair enough. <sighs> no, Scomo is more than embarrassing. He's actually really bad, isn't he? He's dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, dear listener, over the years we've done several stories about <laughs> emotional support animals <laughs> on aeroplanes. <laughs> So Australia is now the uh, the United States' emotional support animal. Is no, this saying? is another US one. But I think this is the funniest story. My favourite was Dexter the Peacock. Yes. Where this woman turned up at an airport <laughs> and her emotional support animal was Dexter the Peacock. And there's a great picture of a peacock sitting on a luggage trolley in a departure lounge uh, as she argued her point. But uh, the latest one is an emotional support squirrel. <laughs> There's been miniature horses, peacocks, hamsters, a duck wearing a nappy and a defecating pig. But now we've got an emotional support squirrel on an aeroplane where a passenger was removed from a Frontier Airlines flight late on Tuesday when she attempted to fly with her emotional support squirrel (laughs) and then refused to get off the plane when she was told no. (laughs) Was she dragged off the plane? 
kicking and screaming. She would have been okay, provided she had an emotional support squirrel still with her. Yeah, yeah uh, it just makes you wonder, doesn't it? The um, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, came out, and uh, according to the will of Alfred Nobel, the winner shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. Now, I can't remember who actually won it, but in the lead-up to it, one of the contenders was Kim Jong-un, on on the basis that... One of the people (laughs) with the, you know, worst set of, um, you know, moral credentials on the planet. But he'd created a chaotic situation that he mildly diffused through negotiation. That, no. that, that it, was making him a, a mockery contender. of the whole Nobel Peace Prize process, didn't it? Yeah. Right. We've had some reviews on iTunes. Uh, excellent five-star reviews. One from Joe Galt who said, Excellent local opinions. Great Aussie banter. Discussing interesting current events and issues. And then we had one from Daniel. Uh, Daniel from the Mountains. Uh, the title was Prepare to be Challenged. In a society where politics is polarised to such a degree where the latte lovers on the left can't come together to speak to the troglodytes on the right, it's refreshing to listen to a podcast that seeks to challenge the radical ideas perpetuated by both extremes of the political divide. So really, don't listen to this podcast if you don't want to be challenged on your political ideology or can't mount an argument in defence of your own ideas. It's an easy listen with no real wading through the weeds of heavy political and social theory. It's an entertaining, fun and challenging listen and has become a must-listen in a very short time. Good on you, Daniel. Well done. Thank you very much, Daniel. Yeah, that's really good. And we better thank some patrons. Um, Dear listener, it's been a little while since you got the hard sell. And, gee, if you've made it this far, (laughs) we're somewhere near close to an hour and a half into this podcast and here's the hard sell. If you have listened to, you know, 20 or so episodes regularly, consistently, and you really like it and you can't wait for the podcast to come out, time to stump up as a patron. <laughs> That's the deal. <laughs> if you can't do that, stop listening. Yeah. If you're not in that category, if you've only been starting to listen to us, you're not quite sure, maybe you only listen to half of them because you think the other half are rubbish or whatever, fair enough. But if you're in the regular category who really likes it, then we expect you to sign up. So there you go. Do the right thing. Speaking of people who have done the right thing over time, none has done more of the right thing than, the, than Sean. God, good on you, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much, Sean. Yeah. And Alex and Janelle, Craig, John, uh, Sting TV, Landon Hardbottom, Wayne Oyame, Brett the Beneficiary, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bromman, Matt J, Robert, Dean, Rod, Palais, Matic Man, Was, Dominic, Liam, Dave, uh, I nearly said it, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, uh, uh, Less is More, and the two Kens. And next week I'm going to be in Sydney and I'm going to meet with, uh, I think it's Tony, one of the patrons, and one of the Kens. And if you're in Sydney... Thursday night, somewhere in the Earlwood area, get in contact and join us for dinner. We're going to have a bit of a chat. You guys could go for a stroll through Lakemba if you're in the Earlwood area. That's not too far away. I think we might give that. It's close, isn't it? It's pretty close. We might get a kebab or something. (laughs) 
oh, I don't think we're brave enough for that. I'm, I'm in the hands of my patron, of our patron Tony there. He says he knows some excellent restaurants. So, and He might be setting you up for a stroll <laughs> through the Kemba. <laughs> <laughs> he might be. Right. Uh, I reckon that's probably enough. Hey. So now next week uh, I am in Sydney, but we pre-recorded uh, an interview with Brother Joseph, hmm. an ex-Mormon. It's very uh, interesting too. A more ex-Mormon in Australia, so he wasn't in the. So he's given the great Australian experience of what it was like to be a Mormon here, and uh, he came over and told us his story, which was fascinating and. It was really interesting, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, good insight. So, so there you go. That'll be next week uh, on the podcast, and then. Uh, the following week we'll be back with our normal sort of uh, examination at that stage of what would have happened in the previous two weeks. Um, no doubt there'll be plenty to talk about. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a patron. Thanks for thinking about being a patron and deciding, you know what, <laughs> now is the time you've got me, Trev. I'm, I'm, I'm committed now. And <laughs> Of course, thank you very much for listening. And of course, uh, if you don't wish to be a patron but would like to support us, we do have an opening for a beer sponsor, <laughs> <laughs> which we are always happy to receive. So uh, we've still got a couple of weeks left of uh, Landon and uh, Waz's uh, contribution, but uh, after yeah. that, we will be looking for more beer sponsors. It would be very un Aussie of me to say I'm quite partial to a good gin. Mm. Maybe we should be also searching for a good the gin, gin sponsor. Gin sponsor, yeah. Do you know I came across a very nice one recently. It's called Jinzu. Right. And it's uh, it's made in Scotland, but uh, it's the brainchild of a, a young English woman who spent some time in Japan and she was very impressed by Japanese art and culture. And so she she styled this gin on her impressions of japan it's actually made partly with uh, japanese sake right. and flavored with a, a citrus that is um, popular and quite common in east asia so, it's delicious so what should we just what should we drink this gin with is straight it, just straight straight it's right. delicious right wow. do you like gin I'm, I've only had a little bit of it over time, and oh, it was always one, with. It's a sipping gin. It's always with a soda or something Straight, like that. Yeah, right. or with soda or right. um, tonic water. It's really got a delightful mm. fragrance. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right, dear listener. Until next time. Thank you very much. Bye. Cheers. See you guys. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up. Tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from... $1.50 Australian 
to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.